0: Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we have a real treat for you as we're talking to one of the leaders in the um, movement for addressing the implementation of actually treating the COVID infection as an alternative to using the, <laughs> the fault of, and of uh, the COVID jab as a method of of uh, preventing it, which clearly it's failed miserably at. So uh, this is Dr. Pierre Corey. He is a critical care physician. He's triple board certified internal medicine, critical care and pulmonology or pulmonary medicine. And, um, he just told me before we started recording that he lost his job because of his position, so we're going to hear the details of that and, and and engage in some really interesting dialogue and you'll definitely want to keep tuned so welcome and thank you for joining us
1: all right, thanks, good to be here Joe
0: so why don't you give us a little background of you know your your history uh and what and what led to your recent termination uh and your uh Position.
1: Yeah. I mean, you want me to how about the history in the pandemic or my career r- real quick?
0: <laughs> yeah, the career, I mean briefly, yeah. you know, just so people know what your background is for those who may not be aware of you. Yeah. And, so uh,
1: yeah. Sure. So anyway, basically, um, so I was a, a math major in college. Um I was fairly immature when I graduated from college, like a lot of young men didn't know what I wanted to do. I was actually in the restaurant business for most of my 20s. Um, I went to medicine late when I was 29. <laughs> Woo, um, that is late. Yeah. yeah. You know, while I was in the restaurant business, I, I got a degree in like health policy. Um, and so I was studying health. i always wanted to be a doctor. I just was not mature enough. And so anyway, went to medicine late um, and uh, became obviously I went into internal medicine and, you know, when I was in internal medicine, I just thought the best doctors in the hospital were the pulmonary critical care guys. They just seemed to be able to handle everything from the minor to the most severe. And I just, I don't know, I just really respected those. I wanted to be like them. And so I became a, a long and ICU specialist. And most of my career was in Manhattan, actually at Beth Israel Medical Center, where I was, uh, I helped run the ICU. I had a really busy outpatient and endoscopy, like bronchoscopy practice. Oh. And then I was recruited to the University of Wisconsin about five or six years ago, okay. um, where I was the chief of the critical care service. And I'll just finish, you know, when COVID hit, I was in a leadership position and I very quickly saw that um, I, I basically, I resigned because the way they were handling the pandemic, I felt sort of morally and ethically obligated. I I, I refused to be in a position of leadership, Joe, when they were insisting on supportive care only. Hmm. So, you know, I was on the phone every day with all my friends, colleagues in ICUs in New York. They were like getting buried, running out of ventilators. ICUs were overflowing. Everybody, the, the mortality rates, I don't think people remember the mortality rates in that first surge in New York were just absolutely off the charts. And literally the leaders in my specialty were saying, oxygen, fluids, and Tylenol. It's yeah, well,
0: let, me, let, me, let me just interrupt your, your, uh, description for a bit. I'm just wondering, curious as to your thought and why the mortality rate was so high early on with this retrospective scope that we have now, yep. is it likely because they refused to give any treatment before they, they basically told anyone with the, the illness, go home and come back when you're ready to die.
1: Well, no well so certainly uh, the lack of early treatment would be part of it i'm talking about hospital mortality cuz certainly nobody really th- and even me i got to tell you at that time the way i was trained joe i mean i i came out of the establishment i mean i was definitely always a free thinker and i had trouble in in the ivory tower but but you know i never really thought there was an effective antiviral you know aside from you know uh you know valcyclovir or or, or um Sure, not
0: remdesivir, that's for sure.
1: Surely not remdesivir. But like, I didn't think there was anything specific for the early phase of the virus. However, as an ICU physician, as a doctor who was an expert in lung injury and in severe lung injury and acute respiratory failure that lands on a ventilator, I knew there was a bunch of stuff that we could use. And the fact that we were using nothing, even anticoagulation, we could see that they were cl- clotting to the degree that I had never really seen before. That, that first phase of COVID the clotting was through the roof. I will tell you, my opinion is the disease has changed. I don't see the degree of clotting like I did in that first phase. There's something that happened to the disease, um, but they were literally telling us that we needed randomized controlled trials to do anything, and people were dying. No, no, I mean you, you get you got how broken medicine is, but no, no, no. but so so the issue was um, all of my ideas were getting shouted down, and I was kind of. Almost, well, it was almost visible that like the, the clinical meetings that I was holding with all the hospitalists and all the intensivists, Mm -hmm. uh, my superiors were showing up and kind of now like getting me to stand down Mm -hmm. because I was entertaining the idea that we should do this, this, and the other thing, and they didn't want anything to be done. And so I said, I'm done You know, I'm leaving. Um, And New York was begging for people to come back because they were getting crushed. And so how how long um,
0: ago was this when you left uh, Wisconsin?
1: So so uh, we got our first patients, I would say, mid-March 2020. I resigned by uh, mid-April. Early April, wow, and then awesome. and then and then I went to New York for five weeks, and I ran my old ICU in New York, um, and and so I resigned from my first job then, and so so I already had a difference of opinion on how to approach this disease, and I don't know if you know this, but I gave testimony in the Senate in May of 2020.
0: That was in was, was at the U.S. Senate or the Wisconsin? Senate? The
1: U.S. Senate. So it was in a, a, a Homeland Security uh, a meeting. And I gave testimony saying that it was critical that the world use corticosteroids in the treatment of the hospital phase of this disease. And I got killed. University of Wisconsin, because I was still kind of employed by then, like my actual resignation date hadn't happened. Mm -hmm. They were livid that I was speaking in public, giving my opinion, which if you know anything about academics, like I had an appointment as an associate professor in society, as an expert in a field, you're actually responsible. To share your insight and expertise. And yet they were very unhappy that I was doing that. And you know what? I got killed at that time. But guess what? Seven weeks later, when the recovery trial came out from out of the UK, it's now standard of care worldwide, is corticosteroids in the hospital phase. And so, you know, I, I had a bumpy ride from the beginning. And just to finish up the point that you brought up, so. Then I did, um, I did locums. I traveled around the country to hotspots. I was in Greenville, South Carolina, running ICUs down there. Then I joined a big center in Milwaukee. I gave another Senate testimony, the one on ivermectin, which you're probably aware of. Um, guess what, Joe? They didn't like that one. Um, Imagine that. <laughs> we decided to part ways there. They, they didn't fire me, actually. They gave me a new contract. And the new contract basically mandated that I speak to no one or do anything without checking with them first. And, you know, I I just said, I don't don't do muzzles. I'm not doing that. And and so I left there. And then I've had a a really nice job. I was doing locums uh, in Wisconsin at a really nice ICU. Um, But the administration there was very unhappy that I was there. You know, no, no institution wants a, I'm using quotes here, a controversial doctor a maverick with outspoken opinions and so let's just say they figured out a way to get rid of me
0: yeah wow so you're you've got a little more free time now which uh you know may seem distressing that, that you were let go but ultimately these life tra- tragedies and and surprises t- tend to work out much t- most of the time working out for the best
1: i think it will i got some plans and i think it's going i'm looking forward to my next phase so I want to
0: touch on some of the items you'd mentioned. One was the corticosteroids, and I think you're really uh, an important agent or, or uh, at implementing the our understanding of the value and importance of this. So, I, and I want to have you expand on that in great detail because I I really didn't get it as much. I certainly understand the the it's a very effective tool for reducing inflammation, but i you know I'm I'm. Uh, somewhat biased and prejudiced against uh, pharmaceutical intervention. So I had a close friend who got, who was relatively healthy, about 60 years old. So came down with COVID and just got slammed with it close to death, actually. And he was on everything that I knew to do. And then he had, he had actually run a uh, series called COVID revealed and had previously interviewed Peter McCullough. So he texted Peter after, after he was still going downhill. And Peter said two words, prednisone an yep. aspirin and aspirin. Yep. So, and, and, and as soon as he took that prednisone, um, his life changed. I mean, he was, he, the lights came back on. So I'm wondering if you can, I mean, just spend some time on the steroids the the, the reason why it's important when it's sure. appropriate and what the dosing is, because this is, this is something that's not widely discussed.
1: Yep. So, so let's go to the background of corticosteroids and viral syndromes, right? So we've, you know, We have to keep in mind, right, that COVID is really our fourth kind of pandemic, right? You had, well, epidemic or pandemic of coronaviruses or severe influenza, right? So SARS, MERS, and H1N1. So going into COVID, you know, we had the experience of all those doctors trying to treat those severe viral syndromes, right? SARS was deadly. MERS was deadly. H1N1 was pretty severe. And when you look at all the trials from those pandemics, It seemed like there was no good randomized controlled trials, but when you look at the observational, it seemed that everyone who got steroids died more frequently. And I got to tell you, it was just a gross and silly misinterpretation of the data. The reason why patients who got steroids died more frequently is because they were sicker. And so the steroids were actually a marker of them being sicker. If you actually looked, and match the severity of illness in those studies. And I will say, you know, as part of the FLCCC, right? So it's me and myself, Professor Mara, Professor Umberto Maduri, Joe Verone, and Jose Iglesias. Those are the five docs that came up with their first protocols. Umberto Maduri is a world expert in the use of corticosteroids in critical illness. And Umberto and another group of colleagues, they published a paper in April of 2020, basically trying to alert the world that if you look carefully at the data from the prior pandemics of coronavirus or severe influenza, that steroids were life-saving in anyone with beyond mild illness. So essentially, as soon as you start to see lung dysfunction or the need for oxygen, so moderate to severe illness, steroids were life-saving. Early on, if you give it as an outpatient during the early viral replicative phase, there was actually a signal to harm, which is the same thing in COVID, right? There was that, the the trial that I mentioned before that came out of uh, Oxford in the UK, they showed the same thing early on before the need for oxygen, there was a trend to harm. Okay, so we know that in moderate to severe illness, it's life saving, and I'll tell you a number of reasons why it's it's just that this thing triggers just a very complex cascade of inflammation. And I gotta tell you the the core of what this disease is, what COVID-19, severe COVID-19 is, it's literally a macrophage activation syndrome. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the macrophages that get stimulated, they're the hyperinflammatory subtype and they're causing organ damage. So you wanna use medicines that either suppress their activity or repolarize them into the hypo-inflammatory. Cause there's actually two kinds of uh, macrophages. There's the M1, the M2. So, so we, I mean, we didn't know that it was a macrophage activation syndrome at the time. We just saw wicked inflammation. And and we knew that from prior pandemics that the coronavirus pandemic steroids were life saving this year, so we started using it. And what's interesting is the world didn't listen. The world didn't even listen to Umberto's uh, paper that he he published with some very very prominent physicians in critical care, and it was it was published in a very prominent journal. But in that spring of 2020, there was so much noise so many publications, so many people saying this and that, like, and basically everybody was looking to the agencies and they weren't looking to the clinical experts. And so they you still know, are. <laughs> yeah, they still are. And, and, and that is one of the, the, the great, of uh, the many great tragedies that everyone keeps thinking that the experts are at the agencies. Mm-hmm. They are not. Those are administrators and bureaucrats and people who have gotten names for themselves throughout their careers. They are not COVID experts, not one of them. And, and I got to tell you, they don't sound like they listen to COVID experts. And so, so, but anyway, that that's what happened at the time. And so, but nobody was using steroids and we saw people dying and I started using them. And I'll tell you this, my colleagues in New York who were running ICUs, they saw everybody landing on ventilators. They couldn't extubate them. They couldn't avoid mechanical ventilation. They were all deteriorating. Once they started steroids, and this is at St. Luke's, at uh, in uh, uh, you know Spanish Harlem, uh, out in Brooklyn, at Methodist Hospital, my colleagues, some of my colleagues at some of the Sinai affiliates, once they started using steroids they saw a marked difference and you know what you started hearing about this on social media hospitalists and intensivists from detroit from new orleans even from seattle they're all saying like start steroids so like we knew all of this on the ground but nobody would listen and so that that's my role of steroids sort of in the in the critical illness but going back to like what your question is is like what's the role but wait, before we go there, yeah, go
0: remember that, because I, I got a quick question for you. I, I, actually, not much, much question is pointing something out because it's an interesting observation that you mentioned that initially uh, it was thought that steroid use in this disease was actually causing or co- contributing to great harm. But yes. it, it's, it's a classic illustration of, cause, of association is not causation. I mean, it couldn't be more clear. And, and you know, an even more blatant example is that people can maybe more easily understand is that if you have a fire and the firemen come up, you could, you could, I mean, clearly fire trucks are associated with fires, right? So you could do a study and say, well, maybe it's the fire trucks that are causing the
1: fire. Perfect analogy.
0: Yeah. So it's not. And uh, thankfully you, te- you, you, your experts tease it out and, and found that this was important. So go on to your question. But, I've got a, I but a
1: Joe, your point is so good because all of medicine had associated steroids and a viral syndrome is bad. And it's more nuanced, right? So in severe and late phase, it's actually life-saving. life-saving. Early on, it's probably harmful. Now, here's the, here's the, here's the uh, caveat to that. I would argue all of those studies showing harm of prednisone early in viral syndromes, they were not studies where there was a good and effective antiviral being used at the same time. Mm, just using this prednisone, yeah. that's it? It is, so yeah, just prednisone alone early on in the viral syndrome probably suppresses the immune system and actually potentiates the replication of the virus. But for instance, in, antibio- in, in bacterial syndromes, if you give someone an antibiotic, steroids in severe bacterial infections are always helpful. They don't harm if you're on an appropriate antibiotic. And I would argue my belief is that analogy holds true for viral syndrome. If you have an effective antiviral, for instance, like early on, like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine is effective. Um, We also have a a number of other nutritional therapeutics that are on our protocols that I'm sure you've seen. Like if you can show that something can interrupt the viral replication, I don't think prednisone is harmful. So in our outpatient protocol, we have prednisone on there. It's not first line. It's not second line. But we, we argue that around day, probably around day seven or eight or nine, mm-hmm. if you're not better and things are getting worse, that's when we would use prednisone as an outpatient. So we have okay. moved our steroids early, but I got to tell you, Joe, I'm going to finish here. Is that? Yeah, well, don't finish yet because I no, want to be, I, I wanna, I wanna be home, which is which is the right time to use steroids mm-hmm. is not too early and not too late. What time that is, you know, you have to be a doctor and you use your best judgment. You hope you get it right, but you know, it's it's you know, there there is something to be said for doctoring, right? It, not everything. Well, you comes gave us some parameters you. that
0: you don't do before a week until you start going south.
1: I think that's reasonable.
0: Yeah, and then what's the dosage when you start? Is it do you do the high dose and, and wean off rapidly, or I mean,
1: so so if I'm going to start steroids in COVID, um, I do a milligram per kilogram of either prednisone or methylprednisolone. Um, I don't use dexamethasone I just for many reasons. We have a number of studies of different corticosteroid agents in COVID. Um, All of the ones with methylprednisolone have better outcomes than dexamethasone, even though the largest trial uses dexamethasone. That's number one. Number two, we have decades of experience using methylprednisolone and prednisone in lung disease. And also, we know that the concentrations and the duration of action in the lung we believe are longer from studies using those agents. So we don't use dexamethasone. I use a milligram per kilogram. Now, I don't use predetermined durations, right? And I think that's another absurdity to this show is mm-hmm. that you know, because the study, like the, the recovery trial, they use six milligrams of dexamethasone for 10 days. I saw throughout the pandemic, I saw all of these doctors, literally in the ICU, patients on, on maximal ventilator support day 10, the doctors would stop steroids. I, I've, I've never heard of, I mean, I was like, what are you doing? You know, and, and it's almost like in septic shock, which is one of the disease models that I'm expert at. It's like, when you need a vasopressor to maintain blood pressure, it would be like saying, I'm going to put them on a vasopressor's for six days or, or three days, and then I'm going to stop. And then you let their blood pressure tank. And so I just saw really odd and bizarre doctoring. I just saw this overly, this over like obsession with following protocols and, and like what, what people said to treat and nobody wanted to do their own thing and nobody was using judgment. So how I do it, milligram per kilogram, and then I watch what they do. If they're improving, I continue it. And then I start to taper once their oxygen requirements are rapid or are significantly decreasing, but I continue until they're off oxygen. Once they're off oxygen, then I taper off over about a week to 10 days, sometimes shorter, depends how long they were on oxygen. If they were on for a short time, I do a fast taper. If they were on for a longer time, I'll do a slower, slower taper, but I don't taper off. I don't start fully tapering until they're off oxygen.
0: Interesting. Wow. And then yeah. that dose, say a you know, 70 kilogram male uh, or, or person, it doesn't matter the sex, but uh, do you give it as one bolus dose in the morning or do you split it up? Three
1: twice. Days? If it's methylprednisolone, which is my preferred agent, it's twice a day. The, and why, the, why is that your preferred agent? Uh, because we have the most data on it, number one. Number two, um, the concentration, we believe the concentrations in the lung tissue is the highest. Mm-hmm. Um, and number three, the outcomes in the studies are all in the studies in COVID are consistently superior. Now, the one question I can't answer, is it methylprednisolone that's better than dexamethasone or is it the higher doses that they were using? I think it's a combination of the two, but I got to tell you the best outcomes in the studies, and there's you know a dozen studies of corticosteroids and COVID. Uh, methylprednisolone is my favorite agent. That's just, again, could I be wrong about that? I could be, but I'll tell you, it's definitely not worse than dexamethasone. And it's almost definitely better.
0: Okay, and if you... Uh... Do you dose it twice a day then? And is there any- Twice
1: a day for methylprednisone. So a 70 kilogram male, I would do 40 milligrams twice a day. Okay. And like I said, so here's the other thing, right? So let's say I put them on 40 milligrams and let's say it's more of a classic patient who's like day eight or night and now starting to develop like really the pulmonary phase, right? So inflamed long lung, abnormal X-ray or CAT scan, and now requiring a little bit of oxygen. I will watch them very quickly. So day one, when I start, I really want to know where they're going day two or day three. What is their trajectory? Is the oxygen requirements going up? Are they feeling worse? Are they more breathless? If so, I'm going to increase my steroids. I probably will either double or triple them until I can get them stable to improve it, right? So if they get worse, I go up. If they get better, I go down, but I follow their disease. Mm
0: -hmm. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you for explaining that. It's, I really never heard it discussed much on all the podcasts I've watched on, on treatment. So thank you for expanding on that. And I'm just curious. I says, it sounds like, and I suspect having no experience in hospital treatments of COVID patients, uh, would you guess venture to guess that the vast majority of patients being, or physicians treating patients with COVID in the hospital are using dexamethasone if they're using steroid. They're not using methylprednisolone.
1: The app ab- in the United States flat out 100%. The vast majority are using dexamethasone. I will say there are some like me who get who have mm-hmm. a feel for methylprednisolone, are more comfortable titrating it, they know the doses. So, there definitely are intensivists using methylprednisolone. but the standard pro- amongst hospitalists, they, they're clearly all using uh, dexamethasone for sure.
0: Okay, so that's a big,
1: big tip for anyone
0: watching this who has a friend relative or loved one who's under the care of a physician in the hospital with a pretty severe COVID is just have them switch to methylprednisolone and just listen to this podcast because any physician could easily understand the treatment protocol that Dr. Corey just described. Yeah. So uh, I think that, let's move on to another component that you mentioned earlier, which is, which is, I hadn't heard this before, but your observation that the the character of the disease seems to have changed and and by that, I mean, the, a shift more from the clotting to these other components. So, uh, but clotting still seems to be. Uh,
1: well, Well, hold factor. on. Let me let me just say, Joe, so the degree of clotting. So mm-hmm. the first patients that I saw, and I still remember them in April of 2020, in fact, my first paper I wrote in COVID, and I've been an author or co-author on maybe 10 or 11 papers. The first paper I wrote was actually on the clotting. Because in the first four or five patients we saw, we were doing this very specialized clotting assay. It's mm-hmm. called thromboelastography. It's only really available in the hospital and in the ICUs. And we were working with a really a nationally famous hematologist at the University of Wisconsin. And we were showing him these clotting profiles. And they were about as severe as you could get on the clotting side, right? So we, you know, in our, in our coagulation indices, right? There's hypocoagulable and hypercoagulable. And these were about as hypercoagulable as you could get the blood of these early patients. And they were so abnormal and so severely clotting. Like literally you could draw blood and like you can actually see the blood clotting very quickly in the tubes. Right. So that's how bad it was. And we saw it in the and the d- degree of clots that we would find in these patients were very, very high. Fast forward, like four to five months, like some of the indices, like when patients would come into the ICU, they just weren't as high as they initially were. They certainly were all abnormal. We still saw clots. It's just, it was just slightly less. So it's not that like clotting doesn't happen. It's just the severity mm-hmm. kind of softened. And the reason why I want to bring that up, Joe, is that. This is, it's it's just such a struggle when you watch modern medicine proceed because they do these massive randomized control trials, oftentimes designed by people who are not really frontline and really expert clinicians. And they do these trials, they take many, many months. And so like the trials on anticoagulation, you know, They were like designed for like those severely clotting folks. And then they found that not in everybody does full dose coagulation work. Sometimes it's half doses, sometimes you don't need the high dose. And so there's all these mixed results of these studies. And I think a lot of people are confused at what to do. I'll tell you what I do with coagulation is I generally follow the D-dimer on admission. Mm -hmm. So D-dimer, right, is a marker of really endothelial injury and clotting. And so if I have something, and I've even had patients with normal D-dimers, I'll just do routine prophylaxis doses on there. If it's moderately elevated, I do moderate. And if it's severely elevated, I'll do full dose anticoagulants.
0: Which which, which type of patients are these? Are these inpatient or outpatient?
1: These are both. These are both. So I have put outpatient, patients on Lovinox, full dose if they had markedly abnormal D-dimers. And, and is it the right thing? Like we do have evidence showing that it generally correlates with D-dimer. Not every study shows that, but I think it's just, it's sound judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, I will tell you there's so many studies have been done on anticoagulation and some of them say full dose anticoagulation is better. Some of them say it's not necessary, but, but like I said, the, the, the data is really hard to parse out. I, I try to use physiologic principles and that's got, that's kind of my approach at this point.
0: Well, it's part of the classic protocol, the Merrick protocol, right? For the, uh, the math plus protocol. I have more Yeah. Issues.
1: Oh yeah. And he and I, I mean, it's that's, vibrant. that's. That's something he and I worked on the, the, the clotting part was probably more my contributions because I was doing you know I wrote the first paper and I was doing all those what we call tag analyses and I was sharing them with Paul and so we we had a very aggressive, anticoagulation protocol from the beginning, you know, math plus the H is the heparin and right. we had full dose on everybody in the hospital and, and keep mind, math plus is for the hospital patient. Mm-hmm. Right? We didn't have an outpatient protocol until later. Um, but yeah, so in, early on we were doing full dose on everybody. Now we do full dose on everybody on admission, like in a hospital, in the ICU, we tend to do half dose unless there's obviously evidence of clot or, or very high D dimers.
0: Yeah, yeah, so uh, using the D-dimer as a standard, why don't you give us your guidelines? Because I imagine that the, the labs are pretty similar throughout the country, depending.
1: Well, actually they're not, there's there's actually different yeah. reference ranges. It's oh, probably okay. best not to remember, remember numbers anyway. So I would just say like, so uh, it's if it's maybe two to three times above the Super upper reference. limit of normal, I'd probably do three a times. If it's less, I would do intermediate dose. And if it's normal, I would just do regular prophylaxis. That, that would be in the hospital. As an outpatient, our protocol is everybody is on aspirin. Mm-hmm. Um. Right at the get-go, one, 325, 1 five grains. One three twenty-five. Yeah, you know, unless there's a contraindication, mm-hmm. everybody has an aspirin, and I will tell you, I don't check D dimers in my outpatients. I just treat them early. I put them on the protocol, and they generally do better, except for when they don't. So if someone is not improving, or there's something that makes me concerned that maybe I'm missing something, or maybe they are clotting, um, either I'll send them for a scan or I'll start checking labs and I'll I'll look at a D-dimer. And so I just recently had a patient who was not really responding as well as I was used to. There was something going on and it was odd because he was pretty sick. He was on oxygen and his D-dimers were normal. And then he got worse one day Went back to the urgent care, we checked labs and his D-dimers were through the roof. Um, his scan of his lungs was negative, but anyway, there I put him on full dose Loganox and I tapered him off, uh, got him off. I put him on for about 10 days and then stopped when his D-dimers came down.
0: So I'm wondering for the patients at lower risk with not elevated D-dimers or in the nor- D-dimers in a normal range, I'm wondering if you've looked at the use of fibrinolytic enzymes like lumbrokinase, natokinase, we have, and, you know, that's high dose, uh, proteolytic enzymes that are taken fasting to address the the, the degradation of fibrin. Yes.
1: Yeah. So once you form a clot, right. If, if you're hypercoagulable and you form a clot, uh, heparin is not really going to help you because, you know, you, you need to be able to break down that clot. So a bl- if, so what we did early on in some of the severe cases, when we saw this very severe clot, and we were actually using, um, thromboplasm, you know, TPA TPA. in the hospital. And we actually saw clinical improvements. The problem is the clotting indices were weird. I did see a complication of that. We saw a couple of big bleeds. Mm -hmm. And some of those early studies just, there wasn't a clear signal signal of when to use it or when not to. So we generally still reserve like the fibrinolytics only for Life-threatening clotting that you've identified, right? So, like a lot, well, but clotting. the
0: enzymes are not TPA; they're much milder. I hope. Oh, oh, you're don't
1: talking know. about for as an outpatient? Those, those yeah.
0: So, I mean, yeah. oral, you know, not in IV TPA. Right, right.
1: No, so I have not. I have not used that as an outpatient. Uh, okay. I basically stick with the the heparins or the aspirin.
0: Okay, yeah, because it's you know, I mean, actually it has its potential complications too, and then. I mean, high dose fibrinolytic enzymes are probably good for, I mean, certainly if you have a sports injury, uh, and, and or any items in your blood that needs to be, de, uh, de, uh, degraded and getting rid of it it's a useful strategy. So it's something that, you know, might have some value there. I, I you know, from my review of the literature and it's actually what I recommend know, personally.
1: I think if we had more personal experience with it and, and also a little bit more trials, the, the problem with us, right. Is that. Yeah.
0: You're sick, treating sick patients.
1: We're also kind of in the like we do, if we're going to put on a protocol for the world, like we do yeah, need, yeah. we want some sort of trials evidence. And there's so many products and compounds that no one's going to do trials on, right? Or, or good trials. And so we tend to get biased to like, you know, medicines that are more common to standard medical establishment. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so it's one of our biases.
0: Yes. So that probably would explain my next question, which is also seems to be some great value in this area, which is NAC and acetylcysteine, uh, not only for improving and increasing glutathione levels, but for actually uh, addressing some of the clotting issues.
1: Yeah. So here's another bias with NAC. Maybe it's because we're either dumb or we're intensivists. Um, but <laughs> we, we have used NAC in different disease models over the years. So especially in pulmonary medicine for sure. like, uh, uh, you know, Tylenol overdoses. Yeah. And, and well, Tylenol for sure. That's a standard treatment and that yeah. is gold standard for us. But no, for uh, pulmonary fibrosis or so pulmonary medicine, of which I'm an expert, we had long decades where we studied NAC for that none of those studies panned out. In sepsis, it didn't really pan out. And, and so for severe disease, we think it's an effective drug and it's a good antioxidant, and I think it does have anticoagulation problems, but our opinion is it's generally weak. So for the hospital phase, we think it's too weak. Outpatient, here's the problem. This is the problem, John, I'm sure you recognize this, is that the amount of compounds that have either biologic plausibility Mm. Or significant clinical experience are in the many dozens. Mm-hmm. And so, like, okay. how do we now, you know, and that's the challenge that Paul and I have had. And that's why we've kind of just, we want studies. So for instance, if you've seen, right, we have like Nigella sativa, black human scheme, right. turmeric, right? Even honey, because there were these lovely, wonderful trials that came out of uh, Pakistan and other places, very well-designed trials showing large magnitude benefits. And so, so we could sink our teeth into that stuff because we had the trial. So on biologic plausibility alone, we're going to be stuck because we, you know, yeah. we, There's no end to the, to the rationales for the stuff. So, well,
0: that, that was a question I've always had. And uh, thank you for your explanation. It makes perfect sense because you're really between a rock and a hard place and you have to rely on some more solid, solid scientific evidence. Um, So
1: many physicians, Joe will write to us. They'll be like, what about this? What about that? I'm using this. And like, I'm like, great. You know, the problem is like, we can't, we have to have some sort of, you know, we have to bring some sort of order uh, and, and approach. And, and, you know, Paul really, you know, we really need clinical trials, unless it's something that we feel is the biologic plausibility is so apparent and, and the clinical response is so palpable um, then, then maybe we would, we'd be able to get behind something. Yeah. But
0: uh, the, the other question, it's not so much that the, the- the, uh, intervention, uh, cause you're actually, it's part of the mayor, Meri- uh, the math plus protocol is uh, vitamin C, yeah. uh, ascorbic acid It's the A in math. Uh, and, but I think it's a relatively low dose intravenously. What is it? A, 50, a gram, 1500 milligrams. 1.
1: 1.5 grams Q6. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, here's what we, have here's, here's what we've learned. So a couple of things. So just so you know, the background of the FLCCC and me and Paul, so me and Paul, Uh, We became very good friends and colleagues over our shared interest and expertise in vitamin C. So Paul's very well known. Oh, interesting. Paul really became uh, even more famous than he was in our specialty when he first proposed and tested uh, IV vitamin C protocol and septic shock. And he chose the dose 1.5 grams IV every six hours, right? So it's only six grams a day, which one would argue is maybe not so much, but I think the every six hours is also important there, but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he found it wildly effective, unbelievably effective if you give it early in septic shock. And so, Mm I, you know, when I first saw his first paper, well, I, I think it was, it was 85% reduction in, in oh, mortality, it mortality. It was unbelievable what he saw. But let me let me give you the caveats to what happened to this IV vitamin C story in septic shock. So I ignored it because I was like at the time, I thought it was just too fantastical. It didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand how you can get 85% reduction when you were using these doses or of a vitamin. I, I was very, very sort of skeptical. And then, maybe six to seven months later, I was taking care of of a dying patient. And I remembered his protocol and I said, you know, let me try it. I tried it. And I have to tell you, the patient died. But I also knew at the time that I tried it. Yeah, literally, there was, you know, it was not going to work. But then I said, you know, it seems harmless. Let me start to use it. And I started to put it in my practice. And I, within three patients, the third patient I tried it on, I saw something that I'd never seen before. I saw a physiologic response that was so overwhelming that I I didn't even know what to do with myself. And I started to talk to colleagues about it. I called Paul. Paul and I became really good friends. And before going into too much of that, but I started to do studies and I started to promote a protocol at the University of Wisconsin, of which you can imagine, Joe, um, I got a lot of pushback. <laughs> like you have no idea. So COVID's not even my first, you know, rodeo in medicine. I, I've had a few other, uh, you know, wars in medicine, but vitamin you're, C- you're,
0: you're, You have iconoclastic behavior.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe so. But, but Paul and I, that's where we first bonded and we knew it worked. But here's the thing. I, I learned something. I taught Paul something about vitamin C that he didn't know. In the septic shock model, based on my data, We found out that if you give the IV IV vitamin C beyond 12 hours from admission to the emergency room, it had no effect in changing Mm. mortality or kidney failure, or really vasopressor duration. If you gave it within six hours, it was almost perfectly protective. Wow! Literally the patients, if you give it to them early, it was great. And that's what Paul's first study showed. However, The rest of the world, when they tried to replicate Paul's study, they didn't pay attention to the fact that almost all of his patients got it within six hours of arrival, because Paul's inclusion criteria in his retrospective study was that he only looked at patients who got it within the first 24 hours, and he didn't report that almost all of them had gotten within first six. And I got to tell you, that is a historic error in medicine, because Mm there has been at least I don't know, six to 10 large IV vitamin C and septic shock trials. And all of them, almost all of them, um, are negative for mortality. But I got to tell you, the time of initiation is so far into septic shock that it's ineffective. Right now, there's a big trial going on in Belgium where they are giving it early within six hours of arrival. So, anyway, that's the key. So, here's what we found out about IV vitamin C to go back to your point is that we found out in septic shock, particularly, relatively low doses that you mentioned, like 1.5 Q6, that actually works if given early. Mm, We think that if you give it later, this is a hypothesis, we haven't tested this, but we think that if you are later than the six to 12 hours, higher doses might be required. And so I think that's for the future of medicine to answer that question. We do have anecdotal reports of severe advanced septic shock from some colleagues Um, who've used high doses of, of, you know, like 25 grams or whatever. And they've seen pretty phenomenal responses. So that
0: is is really interesting. So just uh, a pragmatic component that you would know, and I'm certainly unaware of because I don't do hospital medicine is, how available widely available is ascorbic acid in most hospital icus or pharmacies could, 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 for intravenous use so is it available it's a, or do they have to like order it to, which would make it almost impossible to implement within the first such, six
1: such a good question so In my experience at the major medical centers, they all have IV vitamin C Mm -hmm. because although Paul is discredited for his IV vitamin C trial, because it was retrospective observational and the randomized did not replicate it. um, I think there's still a number of doctors who recognize that all of those further randomized control trials really were not well designed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so and in let's say so here's the thing. So when I was the chief of the service at University of Wisconsin, we were about 17 or 18 ICU specialists, I would say three to four of us had it as standard in our practice. Um, The rest of them didn't. And my sense is that in most big ICUs, you're going to have one or two that use it. Okay. So I would say the big centers do. The smaller hospitals, so I've worked at a number of major centers where we get a lot of transfers from regional, because now I live in the Midwest, I'm a New Yorker, but I live in the Midwest now. And when we get it from these little hospitals, many of them don't carry it on formulary. So is that a fair answer? Like it, it kind of it depends. Yeah, so
0: if you're know. at a big, big center, no problem, most likely because of the number of physicians there is going to be yeah. available. And, but if you're Joe, small because hospital, it's such a, it's just, such a sophisticated
1: just, just, medicine. I
0: <laughs> know, yeah, it's so expensive. You,
1: know, you you need a really sophisticated center in order to find I, intravenous vitamin C, literally a water-soluble vitamin. You have to go to specialized centers to find it. It is absolutely absurd. Yeah, well, you
0: know, and it makes sense. It's largely reflection, not so much of their belief in it, but the number of clinicians on their staff who are using it. If no one's, I mean, it has an expiration date, so if no one's going to prescribe it, why buy it and have it available right. if no one's going to, you know, use it?
1: But one one other thing though, so there's also a trial. So I talked mostly about the disease model of septic shock. The disease model of ARDS had a really interesting trial about three or four years ago called the CITRUS-ALI, acute Lung injury trial. And they actually showed a profound mortality benefit. And in that trial, they used 50 milligrams per kilogram IVQ-6, which is around a little bit over two you know, for a regular 70 kilogram male, you know, it'd be, it'd be about 3.5, right? So uh, what was it? Uh, Or or 2.5 milligrams, uh, 2.5 grams, IBQ6. So, so there it's about 10 grams a day and they showed a large mortality benefit. And, and so if you look at our doses, although we use 1.5, just because that was our standard dose, um, the citrus ALI uses 50 milligrams per kilogram, which is 2.5. And then there's a number of case reports in advanced lung injury, what we call mega dosing. So 25 grams twice a day um, has, has, you know, there's a number of case reports where they saw profound responses in the, you know, uh, response to lung injury of these high doses. So I don't think that we do it perfectly on our protocol, but we do it pragmatically, which is, I gotta tell you, the one thing that most hospitals won't do, they won't let you give 25 grams twice a day.
0: Yeah, well, just hospitals will not administer. It because
1: no, because there's no precedent for it. They don't know anything about it. You can't say, "Oh, there's a case report where it worked really well." One guy. I mean, medicine's broken that way. Like they, they don't. Yeah, okay. Even a, something well, as safe as, as IV vitamin C, they'll think that you're crazy if you want to give someone 25 grams.
0: Unless you know you're you somehow established your protocol and worked them up, and you have a relationship with them. But, but isn't as a tangent to that and a reflection of my being a boy scout early on, never made Eagle, but it got close, <laughs> uh, the, um, would it make sense for people watching this who are concerned about someone in their family or community, that's going to get sick and go to the hospital. And that's a, it's a local community hospital. So they won't have the, I, the IV vitamin C, or maybe they can call them and see if it's there, but if it's most likely not just to ask their doctor to order that for them, it's a vial; It's not very expensive, but they could keep it in there and then bring it to the hospital. And then they, they can at least administer it.
1: So I, I have been involved with a number of cases where uh, hospitals, pharmacists, formularies in the hospital have been asked to get Because remember, you can get any medicine in this country generally within 24 hours. I mean, you can yeah, get it. Yeah, but it, it might it, be
0: too late at 24 you, hours.
1: Exactly. No, no, 24 hours is long. But for a hospital, you can borrow it from a neighboring hospital. You can get it shipped. I mean, there's, a, there's ways to get these medicines. It's not the it's not the how to get the medicine It's whether they would give it so they would have to be under the care of a physician who's willing to prescribe it. And if a physician has no experience with it, that, you know, they just don't they don't do it. They don't do it. I'm telling you, they don't do it
0: oh, it's got to be so frustrating. God, <laughs> it's good. you know, you have something that's going to be essentially life-saving and they refuse to administer it and, and with virtually no side effects, no side effects.
1: You, you should see the resistance I got when I was like, at one point, I was the director of the main ICU at University of Wisconsin. And the, 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 the data for me was so overwhelming, the early data. And I just said, hey, guys, can't we just start a protocol where we just give everybody on admission, IV vitamin C, like what's the downside? Everyone starts talking about kidney stones and no. and like all of this nonsense. And we had so much data to show that that doesn't happen in acute illness no. and, or in IV formulations, but it's, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. Like when, when you propose a new way of treating someone to a doctor, this is what I've found. Every time I have what I would call a bright idea, I'm faced with a doctor who is by definition smarter than I am, who knows more than I am. So when I have a new idea, obviously, my idea has to be wrong, Joe, right? Mm-hmm, of course, yeah. Because if it was right, they would have thought of it first. And literally, I feel like I live in a cartoon in medicine, because every time I discuss with someone with someone, they just don't believe anything works, because if it worked, they would be doing it. It's bizarre. It's bizarre.
0: You know, it's, it's I think a testimony to the arrogance of many physicians. You know, they're they're well intentioned, but they just are reluctant to accept that there's other people who have insights that might be helpful to them. And they've they've long since lost their their journey of being a perpetual student.
1: It's 10% that I find that aren't that way. Like when you you can approach a doctor, you start having a conversation like this, and they're like, huh, that's interesting, or I'm intrigued, or seems reasonable right? Those kind of responses, unfortunately, it's a very small minority. And so it's like you said, it's, it's, it's this ingrained arrogance that, that physicians either are trained with, or it comes with the territory, but it's very damaging. I I think it, it, it holds medicine back and it hurts patients.
0: It kills people. That's killing people. Literally. It's not hyperbole. So, um, on a really important topic, I mean, you've put together an outpatient protocol, and obviously you've sifted through a lot of the evidence, and, and I know, I just want you to share what that is, and I, and I believe you're going to be sharing that you're they're not claiming this is the ultimate, this is the, the gold standard, this is what you've accumulated together based on the data, and there, may, there likely is some better interventions that could be added to this, but this is a start. Would that be fair? No
1: question. Okay. So, first thing I would—I'd appreciate that the way you brought up that question, Joe, is that because you're helping me remind myself. So, our protocol number one is always an evolution. We're mm-hmm. not saying like this is the only way to treat it. This is how we've decided to treat it. And this is how it will always be treated. We reserve the right to deprioritize, change the dose, substitute a new medicine. You know, we want to follow the data and the experience and and the knowledge of this disease. That's number one. Number two, all of our protocols are combination therapy protocols. And by the way, that gives doctors fits. You know why? Because they want to know, well, how do you know that this is necessary? How do you know this? And like, we know that there's trials of each individual component showing that they're effective. We believe that they're synergistic. We're never going to do a trial which tests every component on our protocols. We're just practicing medicine and giving what we think is pragmatic, sound advice. So that would be one statement. The second is, there's a number of protocols, right? So the AAPS has a protocol, you know, the test world council for health, they have a number of options. And so there's a lot of doctors who might emphasize or de-emphasize a number, you know, a medicine on our protocol. And so um, we do not pretend that this is the only way, you know, of skinning the cat. Um, but we do put a lot of thought into it and, most, and you also notice another thing is that most of our medicines are repurposed, right? So they're not novel. Um, they're very well known over decades. Safety profiles are well known. They tend to be generally low cost and their mechanisms are are, are well known. And so um, I would say a central medicine to all of our protocols, prevention, early treatment, hospital and late phase, like a long haul is Ivermectin for many reasons, right? So we find that Ivermectin is a potent antiviral. Um, that's been demonstrated for 10 years now in the lab in numbers of RNA viruses. They've shown that it interrupts replication of like Zika, dengue, West Nile, even HIV, it's shown some efficacy in the lab. And then the clinical studies are just overwhelming. Um, can I just take one minute to say sure. that if anyone wants to call ivermectin a controversial medicine, (laughs) I just want to call out, it is absolutely not controversial, it is a medicine that is buried in corruption, and the corruption is in the suppressing of its efficacy. There are, unfortunately, this is what I had to learn in medicine, is that there are immense powers that do not want the efficacy of that drug to be known. Because if it is known and becomes standard of care, it will obliterate the market for any number of novel pharmaceutical products. And so it's, well, it's, it, would, it's it, would, it would eliminate yeah.
0: vaccines
1: that the justification it, it, for
0: emergency it, authorization it would, fail to exist, would
1: fail to exist. So when you look at the actions taken against ivermectin, it can only be understood of that it's threatening something big and powerful because, boy, has it been attacked? And it's been attacked when it sits on like literally 64 controlled trials, almost every single one of them showing benefit, many of them large benefits. And yet they the other side distorts it to make it seem like it's controversial and it's, it's absurd. And so um, we know it works. We know it from in vitro, in vivo, animal studies case series, one of the first case series in June of 2020 that came out of Dominican Republic, 3,300 consecutive patients coming to the emergency room. They treated them with ivermectin. 16 were hospitalized, one death, 3,300 patients. I mean, a profound result of acutely ill COVID patients in Dominican Republic. And those experiences have continued. Now, one caveat is that we, we're playing catch up a little bit because ivermectin is a, has a dose response relationship. And remember, Delta had 250 times the viral loads of alpha. So we started seeing breakthroughs on our prevention protocols. I'm, I'm one of them. I got COVID while I was taking it weekly. Now we're doing it twice weekly. Is it the right dose? We're not sure. There were a
0: number Wait. of videos that, that uh, tried to disparage you as a result of that, that tried to widely circulate and discredit you.
1: I found that you know that people took a lot of glee in that, like you know, you know, doctor who uh, recommends ivermectin gets COVID while on ivermectin, and I got to tell you. Maybe I'm just naive and too much of a physician, but I also found it curious that I got COVID because nobody had for many, many, many months. And we had, I knew many hundreds of people around the world who were taking it prophylactically. But when Delta hit, that's exactly when we started to see breakthroughs. So like, Mm -hmm. I knew it was Delta. I I didn't think it was a failure of ivermectin. And so we're seeing much less breakthroughs now on a higher dose. Is it the right dose? I don't know. Um, Could it be higher? Maybe. Um, but, but we, we, we know it works uh, as a prevention. Did
0: you you change the entire dosing regimen based on the introduction of or experience with Delta?
1: Yes, because of the breakthroughs, we just empirically chose twice a week instead of once a week. And and Um, there is
0: no, there is no test for Delta. I mean, it's just a a SARS-CoV-2 test, right? The the actual, um, genetic identification. No, but
1: Sequencing is done
0: in like a research lab. So
1: 100%, there's no test for Delta. But when I say Delta, it's when in the places where they did do the genotype sequencing, once the centers that were doing that were finding that like 60, 70, 80% of the samples were Delta the rest of us assumed it was Delta because everywhere they were sequencing, they were finding that the vast majority were Delta. And so, so, and again, it's only specialized centers that were doing that. So that's where we look to, to find out what variant we're dealing with. Right? Like, so for instance, right now, if I take care of five uh, Covids next week, will I know if they have Omicron or not? I have no idea. Until some center tells me that 80% of what we're seeing in the community is Omicron, I won't know. Right. So, but with Delta, it was pretty clear. Most, most centers, most countries uh, that were doing genotype uh, sequencing, it was all Delta. You know, the, the yeah. Delta was just such a high, uh, you know, so that's how, how many, we knew how it was How uh, many
0: centers that do the genotype sequencing are, are there in the country? Is it a dozen, is it 50? Zero,
1: zero idea. I, mm-hmm. I know that in South Africa right now from the reports that I've read, it was a consortium of seven universities that were doing the sequencing. I think so most-,
0: most, is, most research centers. Say that again? Mostly research.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, you need specialized equipment and facilities and expertise. So. um,
0: All right. So I interrupted you. So the ivermectin for sure, higher dose now since Delta is out. Yeah. So
1: (laughs) we, you know, and we use higher doses for treatment you know, because uh, it has a dose response, the viral loads are higher. So we know we need higher and, and the higher doses are effective. Um, and so, and that's another thing, right? With the trials, some of the trials are playing catch up. They're literally using like low doses in better variants. They're using like old doses in new variants. And anyway, um, so ivermectin for its early antiviral properties, we also use it later on because it also has a whole host of anti-inflammatory properties. And so it actually is effective at multiple phases. Besides ivermectin, we also have that of an, as an option a drug called nitazoxinide. Now here's the trick about nitazoxinide. The trick is saying it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Saying it is one challenge. The other challenge is that in the US, it's not really an option. It's, it's absurdly expensive. It's very uncommon. Few places stock it. Like you won't find it at your Walgreens. It's, it's an anti-protozoan, anti-parasitic medicine. Very common in other continents, but not really in the U.S. And it also has a little bit of a, a pharma bro aspect to it. If you know what I mean by pharma bro, I mean, it has like this it, oddly inflated price. Like it's many, many hundreds of dollars, even the generic. And the brand name is like $5,000 for a treatment course. Meanwhile, in Brazil, it's like $3.50 for a treatment course. So... In the US, it's not an option, but you know, interestingly, Joe, our protocols are followed like in many countries and continents around the world, like in India and Ukraine and South America, a lot of people uh, look to, so nitrous oxide is an option there. Um, and from my colleague, Flavio Caraghani, who's done a number of trials in Brazil, he's he's about as most published clinically and, and in trials in COVID as anyone His data from Brazil show that nidazoxone and ivermectin are equally effective, equally effective as an early antiviral agent. And nidazoxone is also known as an antiviral. In fact, it's standard of care for rotavirus in Brazil. So it's already an established uh, antiviral medicine. And so um, what he says is that they're equally effective and the combination are actually better than each one alone. So like in Brazil, for someone sick, they'll use the combination. So so those are the antiviral components. Then we have um, uh, medicines that have either antiviral or anti-inflammatory or a combination. So like uh, melatonin, right? Uh, zinc, uh, quercetin, um, and then obviously for anticoagulation, we have aspirin. Vitamin D is critical. Right. So uh, we really want people to have normal vitamin D levels going into the illness. Right. That's the, and that's the ideal. You're trying to bring them up during
0: the illness. With everyone watching this, that's the take home message. Check yeah. your vitamin D level. It's nor, if it's low, then go supplement now, not when you get sick.
1: Joe, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Why is not why isn't our federal government from the get go? Why didn't they tell every doctor in the land to make sure that the patients in their practice have, Adequate vitamin D levels?
0: Well, you know the answer to that. What's the same reason they discredited and disparaged ivermectin? It's the same reason. It's a threat. I yeah. mean, it would it would literally re- would have reduced, from my understanding of the literature, 70, 80, maybe even higher than 80% of the morbidity and mortality from the disease if everyone had a, a and, vitamin and D and level over 40 nanograms per ml.
1: No question. In fact, just this week, there was a study that came out huge database of patients where they looked at patients who, uh, their vitamin D levels before they got ill and then during illness. And what they found was they estimated they did the fancy statistical modeling, logistic regression. They found that at 50 nanograms per milliliter, zero mortality. Anyone, if you were, if you go into this illness with, with a, a, a level of 50, they, they observed no deaths occurring. And so, you know, and I asked you the question, obviously, I was being sort of sarcastic or facetious, I do know the answer, but, but I do have to point out the criminality of it because Mm -hmm. the federal government knows, they know the population that I said they know that vitamin D deficiency, especially in low income minorities in the north of the country is ubiquitous in nursing homes right? What What is vitamin D deficiency in nursing homes? They don't go out in the sun all the time. They don't have uh, great diets. And so the idea that we, we didn't have a vitamin D protocol nationally is it, it, it it's criminal. It literally it's criminal, criminal. Yeah. criminal. So, so vitamin D is on our protocol. I that's for, the
0: only paper I've written this century was a review of that evidence I published it last year in, in nutrients. It's actually the most, must the most downloaded paper that was the second most downloaded paper ever in the journal.
1: <laughs> so it, it's a big topic, and I'm glad I, we. And actually, I knew you were an expert, and that you that you'd, that you'd uh, written on it. And so, I mean, that's that's a, a topic I'm sure near and dear to your heart as a physician. And so, uh so
0: simple, so basic, and you don't even have to take a supplement if you live in Florida. You know, you. I mean, I haven't swallowed vitamin D in over a decade, and I right. have levels over fifty. So right, right,
1: right. So. You know, and so the, the, the problem, Joe, is now let's talk about what it's like when you get sick. So like for those who are low, once you get sick, obviously it's going to be consumed a little bit and, and, or if you go into it low, how do you supplement Because vitamin D3 in an acute illness, I got to tell you, I am underwhelmed with its clinical I
0: impact. Totally agree. I'm not impressed with the data either. It's, 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 it's not an intervention when you're sick. Right. It's Absolutely. too late.
1: So what we did Horses is out of the barn. The 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 positive studies that we've seen, although I'll mention a study that just came out this week, maybe I can share that with you because I just uh, Paul sent it to me the other day. But um, the positive treatment studies actually use either calcifidiol or cal- or calcitriol. So mm. we have that on there, but that's prescription only. Not all mm. the doctors are familiar with it, and so you know, I, you know, if I were sick, I would want to take calcitriol if I had a low level or if I knew that my level was not, yeah. but, um, but what are, the doses? The
0: what are the, is that in your protocol?
1: So, yeah, we have, um, calcitriol is 0. 0.25 micrograms. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my colleague, uh, kind Johnny in Brazil, he uses 0. 0.5 micrograms of is calcitriol
0: as a dose ideas. It no, my, it's every micrograms, day. Micrograms per kilogram, or that's the,
1: no, dose. just micrograms. And it's daily. Um, that's the dose for calcitriol. And so and
0: that's you, parental, that's parental, right? I am,
1: uh, no, it's actually oral. It's oral. Okay. The, cal, the calcitriol was oral, I believe. Yes. I thought it was parental. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean the dialysis patients take it, you know, uh, to supplement their vitamin D. So anyway, we, we do try to have the more active forms of vitamin D in our protocol. We just saw a study which showed. Let, let me just go back there a bit. Calcitriol is the
0: hydroxylated form. It's actually what is active. measured. Yeah. It's what's measured or is that, no, is it, what is it? 125 no, it's, dye? it
1: so calcitriol is, so if it's you 25. do B3 to think, uh, OH, which is calcifidiol, and then calcitriol is the, so, calci, oh, so is the immediate precursor to the active vitamin D. Calcitriol is the active vitamin D. Okay. Um, so we favor either of those two, the vitamin D three, in order for it to metabolize in the active form, it's going to take too long. Plus your conversion or me- metabolic pathways are diminished in illness uh, yeah. as well. And so you
0: might even have snips that diminish it too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So the, so like you said, I mean, I think our point is, is, is exactly what it is, which but is, that
0: is a very good distinction and it has somehow escaped me that that, the activated metabolites, which are available pharma, uh, pharmacologically. If you're sick, that's probably the way to go. If you oh, don't in, in,
1: in the hospital, I give them calcitriol for sure. Um, the active form, you know, it's immediately active, doesn't even be metabolized. And so it's, it's you know, it's working right there. Um, yeah. We just saw a paper this week, which looked at a bunch of, and their protocol was, it actually showed a mortality benefit. And I believe it was in hospital patients and they used 100,000 uh, units of D3 day one and then 10,000 each subsequent day. And they yeah. showed an impact. Um, yeah, that would,
0: could make sense.
1: That's a very high dose. And so I think if yeah, but you, it's not dangerous if they're low, no, I'm
0: assuming no. they did. They measure their blood level first.
1: I can't, I have to read back on the paper, but so I just bring that up to say that there was one protocol that did use you know oral D three and had an impact, but those are very high doses. So well, even if you're so, using the calcitriol, it's probably good to put them on orals too because
0: eventually you want that to be the the source, and you not want to be giving calcitriol every day.
1: Right, and once you stop the calcium trial, right, you don't want to leave them deficient. The, the right. So, uh, so anyway, so those are the other elements on our protocol, and then we added in the last few months, we added what we call sort of a nutritional therapeutics, because um, you know there's those nice trials that showed black human seed, which I was fascinated by that compound and that molecule, obviously widely used throughout the world, especially not in the U.S. Um, but it had all these pleiotropic effects, you know, immuno-immunomodulatory, meaning it helped the immune system while being anti-inflammatory. It also had antiviral properties, and so it was almost like. Wow, that sounds really good. And and the, the trial in Pakistan, where they combined it with honey, who knew honey? <laughs> like Paul and I were really maybe you know more about honey than I than we do, but we were really impressed with with really the the literature and the science behind honey. They they'd been studying that in in a number of sort of disease models and even viral models. And so Yeah, and
0: just to be clear, this is raw, unprocessed. This is not the honey you buy in most commercial grocery stores.
1: And do you think that because most people don't have raw, unprocessed honey. No, but you
0: can easily get almost any health food store gets in. It? It's so easy to yeah. get online. Even Amazon has it. So, yeah. But yeah, you, the regular you, honey, purified, refined honey is just like table sugar. It's not going to do it.
1: You, you don't think it's going to do it's not going to have enough of the the, the no. central compounds. No, yeah.
0: no. Because it's, there that, is magic in honey. There's no question. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a health food.
1: Now, Except now I'm alive. now I'm a little embarrassed because I don't know that we've specified that on our protocol. So I think uh, maybe you brought yeah, up,
0: yeah, yeah, just get a like manuka honey is really good. I don't know if that that was the one they used in the studies that you quoted, but yeah,
1: I have. That's what you wanted me to do now is I, I need to look back to see what I have to look back to see if they specified that it was you know raw natural honey. My guess is that you're probably correct uh, that yeah. that's what they use. So I have to look back.
0: Yeah, uh, otherwise it doesn't make sense.
1: Yeah. And then, but here's the other important thing. So those are our like, um, a kind of our mainstay. Now here's, here's, the, here's the magic or the art of medicine, right? So if I have a 30 year old who's day one, you know, just had his fever last night, let's say he got tested today or, you know, his brother or his mom had COVID this week. So, you know, it's COVID flat out 100%. And it's day one, he's young and healthy. You know, Ivermectin alone, probably will get them better within a couple of days. And, you know, end of story, no problem. The, the challenge is, and I find this odd that we're this far in the pandemic, I'm still meeting patients who fall ill and think it's a cold. I don't know if you've seen it, but like, I have seen rather smart people be like, Oh, it's just like, you know, one of my colds. And then suddenly they get a little bit sick, a little bit sick and they find that it's actually covid um, and so sometimes I'm meeting patients who are day three, four, five into disease. They haven't really gotten adequate treatment, and there I have to use more of the protocol elements, right? And so we have that first line, which I said, you know, it's like ivermectin with the nutritional, you know, like quercetin, melatonin, zinc, vitamin D, um, aspirin. Then we have second line, and for me, so there's uh, an SSRI called fluvoxamine, which has actually been shown to be very helpful. Um, is that through Steve Kirsch's research, right? Oh uh, yeah. Steve was an early uh, proponent of it. Cause he, you know, he was, he started an organization called the early treatment fund. And as soon as he was aware of the, uh, the early efficacy around fluvoxamine, he helps fund some of the studies and he helped highlight it. So he's been a real champion for uh, a lot of important things in the pandemic. So fluvoxamine is kind of his baby. And, and you know what, the studies continue to pan out. Mm-hmm. And so, Uh, And even clinically, some of my colleagues who incorporated into the protocol with ivermectin and fluvoxamine, they found that they saw much less treatment failures. I mean, ivermectin is highly effective, but it doesn't cure everybody, right? They saw, you know, an occasional treatment failure. and They said it really disappeared once they used the combo. So for some, the second line that you would add For someone older or more advanced disease, you know, more comorbidities, obese, diabetes, like I tend to throw the kitchen sink at those folks. I try to use as many elements in the protocol. So, there I will add either fluvoxamine or the, for me, the game changer now is anti androgens. So, if you've seen our protocol, we use uh, spironolactone, which is a diuretic, right? A potassium spray diuretic, but it has at doses above hundred milligrams a day, it has potent anti-androgen properties as well as dutasteride, right? Which is a five alpha reductase inhibitor, which also suppresses testosterone. And the reason why is that the androgens seem to be a huge potentiator of this illness, Mm -hmm. not only in terms of driving viral replication, but also in potentiating inflammation. And so if you can suppress the androgen, this applies to men and women, Probably bigger impacts in men, of course, mm-hmm. um, but obviously
0: higher levels.
1: Obviously, exactly, but but it's not to say that it's not helpful in women, right? Women also have androgens, and so. Um, the trials on that are really, really potent, the ones that are ca- coming out of Brazil, the observational, the randomized. And so um, so we have an anti-androgen uh, aspect. So I've been using that in our patients, Some of my sicker or older or more advanced disease patients, I'll add that on pretty quick. And so I've had some patients on ivermectin, fluvoxamine, dutasteride, spironolactone as like the the sort of mainstay of the antiviral, uh, anti-inflammatory. And and just for for your audience, if they're geeky and they wanna know, there's an uh, enzyme called TMPRSS2, and that's the enzyme that essentially um, cleaves the spike protein and allows it to bind to the cell and enter. And so if you block that enzyme, you, you basically prevent viral entry and replication. And it's the reason why men do worse with COVID. Men between the ages of I think 40 to 50 are six times as likely as women to die. Between the ages of 30 and 50, they're twice as likely to go to the hospital. And in the spring of 2020, one of the first reports that thought that there might be an androgen connection, it came out of Spain, but This group uh, in an ICU, they noticed one day as they were examining their patient, they noticed that the vast majority of everybody on a ventilator in their ICU was bald. Right, and so alopecia, right, baldness, is is a marker for the more p- higher levels of the more potent phone, a form of tes- testosterone, right? And so, the, you know, we've seen the dispar the gender disparity of COVID for a long time, and so um, attacking it's a, that aspect it, of- is
0: because of the androgen itself or the androgen's effect on this so, enzyme that cleaves. So t-
1: exactly, it's the latter. So TMPRSS two is almost totally regulated by androgens you okay. suppress the androgen you suppress the activity of tnpr ss2 wow. which suppresses the ability of the virus to actually enter the cell and so wow. literally it's an androgen wow. regulated enzyme and so that's a really important pathway and and what's nice is spironolactone Super cheap, used for decades. Oh, Even sure. women use it, out-back, right? For out-back, out-back. or alopecia, It's it's used uh in a lot of places. And so you can use these things in outpatients in women and men.
0: Perfect. So, so do you integrate yeah. vitamin C ascorbic acid into the protocol too,
1: Or we do. We do. So we don't have very high dose. We use oral, so that is in our protocol. Um, I don't think it has a as as big a benefit as I would like, and I think it's From what I'm understanding is that the way in which it works as an outpatient is maybe not due to the direct actions of vitamin C. It may Mm -hmm. not be due to the concentrations of vitamin C that you're reaching. Because remember, oral vitamin C has limitations in how much you can absorb. It it has rather modest concentrations you can reach. But we we have a colleague in our circle who is uh, an expert at the microbiome. And what she has found is that one of the bacteria, which is most protective and most predictive of a good prognosis in several diseases, as well as COVID, is uh, bifidobacterium. I don't know if you're aware of it, but oral vitamin C may be working by increasing the population of bifidobacterium. And so it might have like a non-concentration dependent effect, like that it works through the microbiome. Apparently it's a it's a big potentiator of that protective bacteria in the microbiome. So I find that fascinating.
0: Yeah, it is. And now there is a differentiation there because you can use type, there's different types of vitamin C, the the conventional type, which is almost all the oral supplements, and then there's a liposomal liposomal will actually, you can use pretty high doses and concentrations because you reach, after about 20 grams per day, almost everyone has loose stools. And for many people, it's half that dose or even five grams a day. So you can get to pretty high doses with using liposomals uh, and e- 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 com- reach doses that are almost co- very comparable to intravenous.
1: And, well, hold on, you're saying doses. Do you mean concentrations in the blood? Because yeah,
0: concentrations in the blood, yeah,
1: because- I, I, I wish you could share some papers with that. Cause when I looked into liposomal I'll, I'll send them to you. I'll send them to you. Like I was like underwhelmed with the actual blood concentrations reached. I, I didn't think they were approximated IV. Like, well, you, you have said, to take more. You have to take more of
0: them. I mean, so you, probably
1: frequently like every four hours or
0: something or, or one. every hour, even, you know, I mean, hour, you yeah. could take a bottle a day, you know, it's not, a, not, a, and it still is less than probably one inch intravenous. Oh, of course. Of so, course. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it's not something you would recommend routinely. And and you, you mentioned the issue, some physicians have with kidney stones, and that is there. And the, part of the reason is one of the metabolic byproducts of ascorbic acid is oxalate. Yep. And if you have a lot of oxalate endogenously, or you have high calcium levels, calcium oxalate stones are real, and they can can yep. increase it. But, but for normal doses, it's not an issue. It has to be over a gram a day and, because, and
1: also for short term joe right so yeah, like right so it's I'm not going like, to oxalate are people who like take vitamin c like chronically at high doses for long duration like if you're acutely ill and you start taking these high yeah, doses mean. for five ten days i don't think you're going to run into oxalate problems i don't know yeah. but i don't think that that's been described really for short term is that correct yeah 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 so, so one, yeah, of the ways,
0: one of the ways that vitamin C works, at least it's speculated, is that it breaks down to hydrogen peroxide and hydrogen peroxide probably has some signaling capacity, but also may be directly toxic to the viral pathogens. So uh, it, and that's at least a speculative mechanism that I'm aware of. Uh, so uh, that's why I I integrate nebulized peroxide. And I understand. I'm sure you've heard of it for.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: But, but obviously there's no. Well published trials. There's anecdotal trials that are published, but nothing, you know, like the, the 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 standard of care would require.
1: Exactly, and so yeah, that's that's where we struggle with some of that stuff. So, so that's our, our patient protocol has those kind of you know, first, second line, third line, uh, the androgens I find as And then obviously um, in like, almost like your friend's case, you know, if someone really hasn't responded or they've gotten to them late, they're day seven or eight, they're getting sick or as soon as the pulmonary phase develops. So as soon as like someone's getting appreciable shortness of breath and I've ruled out a pulmonary embolus Mm -hmm. or they have an abnormal X-ray or they require oxygen, um, corticosteroids must be started then. Um, I know some doctors who started a little earlier, like day five, whether or not you're on oxygen or having a lung problem. And I think that's probably okay. As long as it's paired with like Ivermectin, nitazoxanide, or even hydroxychloroquine, Um, uh, again, hydroxychloroquine is another drug that got buried in corruption. You know, it's, it's, it was a drug that worked. And there was a massive systematic um, attack on it, with essentially fraudulent trials, um, papers published. I mean, that's a whole other saga. That's you know, and that's what that was the repurposed drug in 2020 that got attacked. Ivermectin is the repurposed drug in 2021. And and so, mm-hmm. you know, Joe, the the one thing I want to say, and I try to say it wherever I am, is that ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine are just the latest in a long line of repurposed drugs that gets attacked by the pharmaceutical industry you know repurposed drugs cheap available off patent solutions to disease are anathema That's to because they're
0: a threat they're a threat They're a total threat to the, to the bottom and, line. and
1: they get attacked and discredited and if you if you bite by if you are an advocate for a cheap safe you know decades old uh, solution to a disease uh, you get discredited as a fringe quack or, or whatever. And it's, 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 no,
0: I, I don't recall that you met did, that you mentioned zinc, but uh, uh, the, I mean, in the protocol, I just think I you, did. You did. Yep. It's okay, in there. So the, Okay. So the zinc, uh, is there attention to, to paying, uh, paying attention to the timing of the zinc? Is it taken with the quercetin or with the ivermectin? We have hydroxychloroquine. I don't know that ivermectin works. We don't.
1: We don't have hydroxychloroquine on our protocol, although we probably should as an option. Although that's as restricted now as ivermectin, right? That's a whole other issue. I mean. Uh, there you know but um but no we don't have we don't have a timing with the ivermectin or with the quercetin. What, it seems I
0: mean, the mechanism it seems to drive the zinc into the cells is how it works with hydroxychloroquine with
1: hydroxychloroquine yes but we don't have hydroxychloroquine on our um okay. protocol so um, although we, we'd sort of in our, in the supporting, so uh, there's a document called the, what we call the Bible in the FLCCC, and that's Paul. So Paul is the author of the Bible. And so if you look at our website, and you go to like protocols, under protocols, you'll see I think we call it the complete guide to the care of the COVID patient. That's really Paul's baby. I mean, Paul started that like from before the first patient he ever saw with COVID and he just started to put together the data and his understanding and, and papers. And Paul is like the most well-read guy on COVID that I think you can imagine. I mean, he re literally reads dozens of papers a day. I mean, maybe not dozens, but at least a dozen. And so he has really formulated, uh, and he's focused very much on therapeutics. And so in that Bible, um, we have a number of uh, therapeutic options that are not in our protocols, right? Because you can't put 35 things on your protocol, but there are options to consider. And so in the Bible, we have hydroxychloroquine, uh, but we don't have it up front in the protocol.
0: Okay. Yeah, we seem to be, if you're going to use it with the quercetin, it might be better if it was taken with the zinc at the same take time. It, yeah, because you're going to have higher zinc levels, and that's how it works. So, you know, right, it makes sense to take it concurrently. Um, so, uh, it, it's great that you put this, compile this, and you and your group. But I'm wondering if you what your recommendations are to identify a clinician who can prescribe these, because many of the me- the therapies that you're mentioning are prescription drugs. So, obviously, you can't go out to the store and buy them without a prescription. So, how do how does someone identify a clinician they can work with and connect and have these prescribed for them?
1: So we don't have the perfect answer to that, but we have a reasonable answer. So we um many physicians have reached out to us, thanked us for their protocols, said that they use our protocols. Many of them have telehealth. And so we try to keep a list of those that treat early. And again, they might not follow ours religiously, but like we talked about earlier, there's many different ways of treating this disease early. There's a number of different compounds. Um, but then there's also a website that we borrow, which has like a directory of telehealth providers for COVID. And they all have early treatment protocols and they're in every state. And so, and some of them, you know, are practices that, that span the country. Now, during big surges, many of them were just so overwhelmed with requests for treatment that I think some patients were ill-served. And I, I, you know, this is where the stuff gets real sad, Joe, right? Talking about, you know, COVID in this country, right? Is that the problem is I don't think that I can get anyone, everyone to a doctor that needs it or wants it, right? Like you said, it's hard, but if you go to our, our website, there, there, we have a quick link and you can find, find a physician and there's directories in each state, some are multi-state and you can try them. And I think a, a number of them are growing and maturing. And so for, let's say we have a bad surge this winter. Um, my hopes are that these telehealth providers can, can meet the demand.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks. That's a good, a good, helpful resource. Uh, yeah. But, you know, you mentioned it's sad and yes, it's sad indeed and that anyone should not have access to this type of Inter- successful inter- or successful interventions but what's even sadder in my perspective is the fact that they're giving this jab to five to 11 year olds they're killing kids they're killing kids and i don't know if you you probably have never seen a child with this illness because it's such a rare no. disease no you've never seen a child with COVID. a
1: healthy child from five to eleven no no yeah, no you, no, you, you don't, don't you hit anyone's see. radar
0: yeah so but they're giving the jab to these and they're we're going to be seeing the consequences of this intervention soon.
1: So, so you know, I told you uh, uh, before we came on that I'm right now in Indianapolis because I'm speaking at a, a conference. It's a global COVID summit. It's an outgrowth of that physician's declaration. And that original declaration, which you signed, right, which is really just, you mm-hmm. know, trying to reclaim the autonomy and and expertise of the physician to, you know, to try to avoid restriction, allow us to do what we do. Um You know, we also since then stipulated three other principles, which we have well over 10,000 physicians across the globe that signed on. And those principles are, number one, like I just said, uh, early treatment and the autonomy of physicians should not be restricted. Number two, natural immunity must be recognized as actually equal or superior to vaccination. The idea that we're vaccinating those naturally immune. And then the third absurdity, which is healthy children should not receive these vaccines. There's just no rationale. The data does not support it. You're not protecting the child. In fact, we know, due to the side effects in youth, and you know, Joe, how many countries now have actually outlawed one or multiple of these vaccines in young people? Some countries in anyone under 30, right? So the Scandinavian countries, they're not going to vaccinate the children because of the toxicity. And yet, now we have states in this country which are mandating it for healthy children. Again, healthy children, it's, it's, impossible to find almost impossible to find a death of a healthy child from covid
0: i think uh, rfk when he perused the literature he said there's never been a reported death of covid in a child who was healthy they I, all I, we can't serious find it really coexisting comorbidities
1: i i i i agree with him because in in the um uh in the large database studies that i've seen published so i think Ah uh, mackerrie, Marty mackery of medpage he he did a 40, 42,000 child database. They didn't find one. and in some of the population studies uh, that came out of other countries, there's one recently in Germany, they didn't find one. like they could not find a case of a death in a healthy child,
0: and yet we've got Pfizer making these commercials and brainwashing kids into believing they were superhero if they get this damn job, it, it, I, I, you
1: know. I used to, not not that I don't get upset anymore, but I, I used to like literally start losing my temper, not foaming, but I just when when I think of the non-scientific policies that we that have been subjected, and and you know it's one thing to start a policy in this pandemic because you think it makes sense or has good rationale, but the problem is we're not revisiting them. We're not reassessing the data and saying, you know what, maybe we should do it differently based on this data. It's like we're sticking to those first things and then the non-scientific objections, they're doubling down on. So they want to vaccinate kids even though the data is just increased. So vaccinating kids in the naturally immune, we have just buried in data showing neither of those categories of our citizens need a vaccine. And yet they're doing it, and and you you're aware of the studies showing that the risk of hospitalization from the vaccine is higher than from the disease. How can you support that?
0: You can't. I mean, if you're rational, <laughs> However, I guess you can support it if you uh, are really uh, motivated to increase the drug company profits. And then it makes it then it makes perfect sense. It's totally justifiable. <laughs>
1: you know, the, the, the one thing that they do, you know, that and and I, which I'll entertain. I mean, I, I'll listen to any rationale. So one is that they want to argue that if you vaccinate the kids you'll decrease transmission it's more 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 of a population-based um uh benefit the problem is the data for that isn't there either so not so although yes kids can transmit to, to parents that's not a predominant mode of spread the kids don't have high viral loads for a number of reasons they don't have as many ace2 receptors they have generally much milder disease And so they're not a a huge vector uh, to not not only in between themselves, but to parents. And so why you would go after them, the lowest or their teachers or their teachers or their teachers. And so, again, it it goes back to so many different things. It's not just about the vaccines or the kids. It's that I I find that there's non-scientific objectives. So, so the prohibitions around hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, those are not scientific objectives. That is some other objective. And I, and you can only argue that they're financial. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, I couldn't agree more. I really uh, deeply appreciate your insights and time that you shared with us and helping people understand some of the practical uh, resources out there to address this illness they uh, come in contact with it or someone they love does uh, because it's a unfortunate reality that we're all confronted with nowadays. So uh, I hope uh, your path, and journey to better better employment uh, is successful and i'm sure you'll wind up somewhere where you can really you've got a load of good solid information and a good head on your shoulders so i'm sure you're going to help someone out somewhere i
1: appreciate it i might work for myself so we'll see yeah yeah we'll see. <laughs> all right so if
0: anyone i mean obviously you, maybe if you could just give us the uh, flcc is yeah. It three C's or two?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's three C's. So Paul Marrick oftentimes misses the third C and I, I yell at him uh, mercilessly, but it's uh, the best way to get to us is flccc.net. So that's okay. the short form of our website, um, flccc.net. Again, we have lots of information on there. We have links to different papers that have come out. Uh, and then obviously our protocols are there. And so um
0: and that, and that FL isn't short for Florida. It's short for Frontline.
1: <laughs> frontline COVID-19 <laughs> Critical Care Alliance. So that's, that's us.
0: Okay. Yep. All right. Well, thanks for everything you're doing. And I'll be, I'll be in touch with you on some separate issues on the vitamin C and then the, the other event that we talked about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure talking to you, Joe. I really appreciate it. All right.
0: Well, thanks a lot.